We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. From John chapter 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that his who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? the man asked. Tell me so that I, might, I may believe in him. Jesus said, You now see him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Let's all pray. Father in heaven, I'm about to do something that um, is too big for me. I'm about to speak from your word about suffering, and I have no idea what everyone in this room is going through, what kind of suffering they've experienced, what kind of suffering they're carrying to church this morning. But God, you know, you know every person in this room, you know them completely and thoroughly. And so we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Uh, Lord, we all need the same thing this morning, whether we are convinced 
about the things you tell us about yourself in your word, or we're unconvinced. Lord, all of us, we are wholly dependent on you to give us ears to hear and eyes to see you in your word. And so, God, we pray that you would come in the power of your spirit, that you would speak to us in a way that lifts our burdens, that convinces us that we are loved, that convinces us that whatever suffering we're experiencing, that it does not have the final word, that there is a hope that is bigger, a story that is bigger than anything and everything that we are going through, bigger than any suffering that we see in the world. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Resurrection Oakland. Uh, the great thing about Daylight Savings is that the sermon ends an hour early. <laughs> That's technically how it works, right? So, uh, so glad that you're here, whether you're here in person or joining us online or joining us an hour from now. Uh, so glad that you're here worshiping with us. We are continuing this Lenten sermon series um, called Following Jesus. Lent is a 40-day period of preparation for Easter. And when you think about Lent, you might think of giving up good things or spending 40 days of misery. Um, but really, what Lent is about is about following Jesus. Lent is about preparing for Easter by following the Savior who came to save us and to make all things new. Lent is about letting Jesus change your life to make you into the person that he wants to be. And that can be difficult. It can be challenging. It can be painful. Because changing, especially as you follow the way of the cross that Jesus lays out for us, can feel like a kind of death. Uh, but as we follow Jesus through Lent, he shows us that the way of the cross always leads to resurrection. It always leads to Easter. And so Lent is about so much more than the things that you give up. It's about the things that you gain. It's about gaining freedom from your shame. That's what we looked at last Sunday. It's about gaining the freedom to be humble. That's what we're going to be looking at next Sunday. And today, we're going to look at how following Jesus gives us the freedom to have hope in your suffering. What if you can give up your hopelessness for Lent. Wouldn't that be wonderful? What if you could look at all the hard parts of your life and all the, the, the terrible evil and injustice that we see in this world, all the suffering that we see in this world, and instead of being hopeless or discouraged, you could be filled with hope. Well, hope is the, the ability to see beyond your suffering. And that's what Jesus wants to give us this morning. This is the reason that babies actually study people's faces. Babies study people's faces because that's where they find their hope. That's how babies know that there is hope beyond their present suffering. There was a study in the 1970s. They took 40 babies that had a median age of nine minutes old. And what they did was they, they showed these babies these paddles with pictures. Uh, some of these pictures were blank, some of the pictures were scrambled, and some of the pictures had people's faces. 
And what they found was that these newborns, they spent considerably longer looking at the faces than they did at any of the other images. See, a newborn is able to recognize her mother in the first hours of her life. And within days, a baby will be able to read emotions on people's faces. If you see a baby staring at you at church or in the grocery store at the park, that probably means that they are reading you. They're reading your emotions. They, that baby might know you, what you're feeling better than you do. <laughs> reading faces is so important to a baby because that's how they know how to find safety. Uh, think about the way a baby constantly looks back at her parents uh, when she's learning to crawl or learning to walk. Think about how a toddler constantly looks back at her parents uh, when she tries a new food or plays with a new toy. They're looking back and they want to know on their parents' face, is this safe? Am I going to be okay? Is this all right? Is this dangerous? One of the most difficult things about suffering is the way that suffering makes it difficult for all of us to see God. When we are going through suffering, intense suffering, it's hard to see God. It's hard to see what he's doing. It's hard to see what God is thinking. It's hard to see what God is feeling. And so what if you could see God in your suffering? Maybe, maybe you, you can't see what God is doing, but what if you could see his face? What if you could see what God is feeling in your moments of deep darkness and pain and suffering and loss? Would it give you hope? Would it give you hope to know where God is and how he is looking at you in your darkest moments? Well, in today's passage, Jesus shows us through this encounter with a blind man, a man born blind, that we can see God in our suffering, and the ability to see God in our suffering changes everything. It gives you hope, a hope that can give you resilience and purpose and meaning in all the pain and loss that you experience in this life. So we're going to break down this passage in three parts uh, to, to understand how this works. Number one, we're going to look at the problem of suffering. Number two, we're going to look at the hope of seeing God. And number three, we're going to look at the promise of the end to suffering. Start with the first point, the problem of suffering. Today's passage starts with this question from Jesus' disciples, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They came across a man born blind, and they were filled with sorrow, but also curiosity. You know, after everything that they had seen Jesus do, uh, wouldn't you think that the disciples would ask, Rabbi, can you help this man? But that's not the question that was weighing on their minds when they saw this man. The question that was weighing on their minds is, why was this man born blind? What happened? Why do things like this happen? Why do, are people born blind? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why do people suffer? When you're suffering, you can't help asking 
that question, why? Why is this happening? Or when you see other people suffer, maybe that's a question that a lot of us are asking right now as we see the news unfolding in Ukraine. Why? Why do things like this happen? Why are some people born blind? Why do people have learning disabilities? Why uh, do people die so early? Why do children grow up without their parents? Why are bombs dropped on maternity hospitals? Why do millions of people have to flee their homes? Why do countries end up fighting wars that they want no part of? The disciples could only think of two possible explanations. They said either the man sinned or his parents sinned. Either the man born blind deserved this, he was guilty, or his parents sinned, he was a victim. And the truth is neither explanation really works. The idea that some people deserve suffering sounds pretty barbaric to us, especially in the States. But the truth is that all of us believe some version of this. In America, we like to use the word karma, which sounds less like divine retribution and more like indifferent reality of the universe. But the truth is we want some type of justice. We want to know that evil will not be unaccounted for. If something really bad happened to Vladimir Putin, there would be a lot of people in the world who would be relieved. But the problem with this idea that suffering always comes from your guilt, that it is the outcome of your personal sin, is that it just doesn't work as a blanket explanation for suffering. Because every single one of us in this room is guilty of wrongdoing. Last December, there was this podcast on This American Life, and it was called, But I Did Everything Right. And as the title suggests, it's story after story of people who did everything right, but still ended up suffering. And there's this one story in this podcast that was so heartbreaking. It's a story about a man named Brian Walter who lost his dad to COVID. And what was tragic about the story is that Brian and his parents did everything right. His parents never left their apartment. Brian delivered their groceries. And when he went grocery shopping, he carried water and soap in his car so he could wash his hands in the parking lot before and after. He wore mask and gloves while he shopped. And then when he delivered the groceries, he would text message his parents so they wouldn't mistakenly come outside of the house. He would leave the groceries in the front door. And then he would go, he lived upstairs in an apartment. And so he would go upstairs to his apartment, text them. And then when it was all clear, his parents would come out, take the groceries, wipe them down, and then put them in a contamination station. They were so careful. But his dad got COVID and he died, he succumbed to it. When I hear stories like this, I think to myself, I totally should have gotten COVID. And it's amazing, uh, my, my family, we talk about it a lot. I can't believe we haven't gotten COVID. We actually haven't, and it's amazing because when I, when I hear stories like this, I realize I didn't do everything right. I should have gotten COVID. Um, I can't believe I haven't. Now, if the pandemic has 
taught us anything. It's, it's you can do everything right and still suffer. And if that's true of a viral disease, how much more true is this of the deep brokenness that the Bible calls sin? We are all guilty of wrongdoing, and if suffering is just the outcome of the things that we have done wrong, we all should be suffering so much more than we actually do. And so that cannot explain why suffering exists. The alternative is to say, well, maybe if it wasn't the man born blind who sinned, maybe it was his parents who sinned. Maybe it's someone else's fault. Maybe we suffer because of the evil that is out there. Our parents messed us up. It's society's fault. And that's important too, and there's truth to that explanation. There's something important to hold on to. It's important to recognize and name evil and injustice. That is real, and we need to, instead of covering up or glossing over it, we need to name it. But at the same time, it falls short. Because if that's all suffering is, if suffering is just the outcome of other people's evil, that makes us into powerless victims. Eric Weiner spent a decade uh, overseas reporting for NPR, and he very recently wrote this article entitled, Watching the War Won't Stop It. Listen to what he says. He says, many of us are experiencing a kind of learned helplessness when it comes to the war in Ukraine. We can't do anything to stop the suffering, or so it seems. Yet we can't stop following the grim news. Have you experienced that? I know I have. There's a word for it. It was the Oxford English Dictionary Word of the Year in 2020, doom scrolling. This is when you can't stop yourself from reading the news about horrible things that are happening in the world, and instead of giving you a sense of empowerment or hope, it actually leaves you hopeless and helpless. This idea that suffering is completely out of your control, it could relieve you of your guilt. It's not your fault, it's someone else's fault, but it will also leave you helpless and powerless. And you the main identity that you will have is the identity of a victim. The disciples asked Jesus, why did this happen? Did the man ward blind sin, which is crazy? Did he he commit some type of prenatal sin that led to him being born blind? Or was it his parents? And Jesus did not accept either of these choices. He said it was not this man who sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. Jesus is saying that what we need most when we are suffering is not an explanation for our suffering. You need to see God in your suffering. We need to know that we are not alone in our suffering. We need to know that we are being cared for in our suffering. We need to see God's face. This brings us to our second point, the hope of seeing God. After talking to his disciples about the man born blind, Jesus healed him. And he does it in a really strange way. We're going to talk about why Jesus heals this man this way in just a moment. But first I want to look at how the story actually doesn't end after Jesus heals the blind man. 
If that's all Jesus wanted to do, if he just wanted to give this blind man sight, this story would have ended in verse 7. But as you saw in the scripture reading today, it's much longer than that. There's so much more to the story. Jesus heals this man, and he goes home, and when he goes home, his neighbors don't recognize him. The difference, the change from being blind and being able to see was so dramatic that people didn't even, weren't even sure if it was him. And once they realized it was him, they asked him, how did this happen? How did you, who were born blind, how did you get this gift of sight? And so he goes on to explain to them what Jesus did. And they heard how Jesus healed him. And when they asked him where Jesus was, the the man born blind answered, I don't know. I do not know. See, one of the interesting things about this miracle is that after gaining sight, the man still had not seen Jesus. Jesus sent him away to wash his face in a pool. And then he gained sight and he went home, but he still hadn't seen Jesus' face. How could he possibly know where Jesus was? was he didn't even know what Jesus looked like. And then in verse 35, Jesus finds the man born blind. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus wanted to do more than heal this blind man. He wanted him to give him the gift, the ability to see God. The man says, who is he, sir? Tell me so I may believe in him. And Jesus says, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. The term son of man comes from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel gets this vision of these four horrific beasts that are destroying the world and trampling over the innocent. And this figure that Daniel calls the Son of Man, destroys these beasts. It's a vision, an image, a symbol of the destruction and end of all evil and suffering. And the Son of Man is riding in the clouds, and people from every nation and every language and every tongue bow down to worship the Son of Man. The Son of Man is not an ordinary man. The Son of Man is God come in the flesh. And so when Jesus finds this blind man and he says, do you... Do you believe in the Son of Man? He is revealing to him that he is God come in the flesh. He's saying, if you want to see God, look at me. This, in my face, you will see the face of God. Sometimes looking into someone's face can tell you everything. Babies know this. That's why they study our faces but we never really outgrow it. That's why we don't say our wedding vows over text message. You need to look into the face of the person you are making vows to. A person's face can say so much. And so what does God's face look like when he sees your pain and suffering? At the end of the book of Job, one of my favorite parts in the entire book Job has been spending this entire book asking, wondering, trying to make sense of his suffering. His friends in common tell him, like, it must be some sin that you don't know about. You must have done something to really make God mad. And Job doesn't accept that answer. And he, he, he asks God, and, and he has this long conversation of God where God refuses to tell him why he is suffering. God is just saying, I am God. 
over and over again in different ways. And by the end of the book, in Job chapter 42, Job says, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And this changes him completely. What did Job see? What was it of God that Job saw that took him from being suicidal to worshipful? Nicholas Wolterstorff wrote this book called Lament for a Son. And it's a book about losing his 25-year-old son to a mountain climbing accident. It's one of the best books on Christian grief that I've ever read. And at one point, he writes something beautiful. He says, it is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. I always thought that meant no one could see his splendor and live. A friend said perhaps it is meant that no one could see his sorrow and live. Or perhaps his sorrow is his splendor. Sorrow and splendor. We need both, don't we? We need a God who is so filled with sorrow that he is in touch with our pain. A sorrow that is so deep and so profound that he actually somehow incomprehensibly understands our pain better than we do. But we need splendor, a sorrow that is so splendid that it will not abandon us to our pain. God will not just commiserate with us. He won't just wallow in our sorrow with us, but he will lift us out of our sorrow. He will bring all sorrow to an end. And this is the face of God that Jesus wants to show us. This brings us to our last point, the promise of the end to suffering. Let's go back to this miracle. Jesus heals this man in a really strange way. He spits in the dirt. He makes mud out of his spit. He smears the mud on the man's eyes. He tells him to go wash in this pool. Why does Jesus heal him this way? He could have clearly just said, be healed, as he's done in other miracles, and the man would have been able to see, why does Jesus heal him this way? Well, he he uses this bizarre technique because Jesus actually wants to give us a sign of a more permanent solution to suffering than miracles. See, every miracle in the Bible is just a temporary fix. The man wore blind could see, But that would not be the end to suffering in his life. He would have other troubles, other sorrows, other losses in his life. Even Lazarus, who was raised from the grave, would eventually die again. Every miracle in the Bible is a temporary fix. They're signs that point forward to the permanent fix that God wants to give us in the new creation And that's what this miracle represents. The early church fathers believed that Jesus used mud as a reenactment of creation. In Genesis chapter 2, God creates humanity out of the dirt. In verse 32, uh, John 9, verse 32, a passage that we skipped, uh, the blind man says, Never since the world began has it been heard that anybody opened the eyes of a man born blind. Over and over again in this story, we're being taken back to the Genesis story, to the creation story, and Jesus is showing us that he has come to do something like creation 
a new creation that whatever we suffer, we suffer it in communion with all of humanity and, yes, all of creation. In so doing, we become participants in the great battle against the powers of darkness. Our lives participate in something bigger. Now one is saying that all our personal suffering, all our personal losses are part of a bigger story. When we suffer, we're dealing more with more than just our personal pain and loss. We're dealing with a world that is lost. We're dealing with a God who loves this lost world. A God whose sorrow is so profound and so deep that it hurts more for the world than the world could possibly hurt for itself and yet is so splendid that it will stop at nothing to rescue the world from all its pain and brokenness and who will make all things new. So how does God do this? How does God save the world and make it new? How does new creation happen? It happens through the cross. Matthew and Mark, they, they both tell us that when Jesus, before Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one thing everybody needs most when they are suffering is the ability to see God. And on the cross... Jesus was looking, searching for any glimpse, any hint of his Father's presence, of his Father's face, of his Father's comfort, but he found nothing. The Father had turned his face away from his Son because Jesus was there to bear our sin to bear the judgment of God, to experience the certain outcome of our sin and brokenness. He was forsaken on the cross so people like you and me could receive forgiveness, the gift of new life, and the hope of new creation. If you can see this, if you could see the face of God on the cross dying for you, the face of God rising from the tomb, the face of God ascending to heaven, and the face of God who will return to make all things new, then you have, will have a hope that goes beyond your present suffering, and it will change everything. It's hard to do, though, especially when you're hurting. How do you see God's face when you're hurting so bad that it's hard for you to believe that any of this actually connects? Well, according to this passage, all you need to do is admit that you're blind. In verse 39, Jesus says, The blind will see, and those who see will become blind. It's counterintuitive because you think that if you want to see, that you have to first admit that you can see. But he says, no, you need to admit that you're blind. Jesus is saying the way to see God is not through your effort. It's not something that you could do. It's not something that is in you. The ability to see God is nothing short of a miracle, and only God can produce it. 
And so if you are having trouble seeing God, the answer is not try harder. The answer is admit that you are blind. Admit that you don't have it inside of you. Admit that you are wholly dependent on God to help you see and understand how much he loves you and how the cross has really changed your suffering and the suffering of the whole world. You have to admit that you need God. The Pharisees didn't understand this. The Pharisees said, what are we blind to? They they thought the worst thing anybody could accuse them of was spiritual blindness. They needed to see before they could believe. But that's not the way that faith works. Faith believes in order to see. Faith says, God, I'm blind. I'm blind without you. Will you help me? Will you have mercy on me? It's scary to admit that you're blind, but it's not nearly as scary as pretending that you can see. And the good news is you don't have to. You don't have to pretend that you have it all put together. You don't have to pretend that everything is okay. You don't have to act like you have nothing to worry about. You don't have to act like you are not carrying burdens in your life. And that's why Jesus gives us this table. This table is the place where you could bring the real you to the real Jesus. That's what Chase said earlier in the confession of sin. It's a beautiful way to think about who God is. That's what this table is. It's a place to bring the real you to the real Jesus The you that is struggling to believe, the you that is doubting, the you that is trying desperately to hold on to hope, but you don't know how much longer you can hold on. Because at this table, God says, I see you and I know you and I am with you. I understand your sorrow. And my sorrow is so deep and so splendid that it will meet you where you are and take you where I am. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat of it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a God that not only that gives us something better than any explanation of suffering could possibly give us. Lord, you are the God who shares our suffering and your sorrow over suffering, our suffering, the suffering of the world, the suffering of of the unspeakable evil that takes place in the world, things that we know about and things that we don't know about. Lord, you know, and you are more broken than any of us ever can be, but also filled with more hope than we could ever dare to dream that any of us would have the right to possess. And so, God, we thank you for the death and resurrection of Jesus, the man of sorrows who draws near to us, and who lifts us up out of our sin. 
And we thank you for this table. And we pray that as we take this bread and take this cup, that you would build up our faith, that you would strengthen us, that you would help us to see you more clearly here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.